This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kajetan Iheka about his new book, African Ecomedia, Network Forms, Planetary Politics, which was published by Duke University Press in 2021. Dr. Iheka was recently promoted to a full professorship in the English department at Yale University, uh, so congratulations are in order. Before writing the book we'll be discussing, he published Naturalizing Africa, Ecological Violence, Agency, and Postcolonial Resistance in African Literature in 2018, uh, which won two prizes, the Eco-Criticism Book Award of the Association uh, for the Study of Literature and Environment, and the African Literature Association First Book Prize. Dr. Iheka has also edited the volume Teaching Postcolonial Environmental Literature in Media, uh, and co-edited another volume titled African Migration Narratives, Politics, Race, and Space. Dr. Iheka, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So before we get kind of to the book, could you share a bit about how you got interested in the general topic of African environments uh, and sort of why you came to the methods of literary studies in order to seriously study this topic? Yes. Um, yeah, thanks for that first question. Um, so I, I I got into this topic as an undergraduate in Nigeria. I was studying at the Imo State University in Owere. And um, one of the things that drew me to literature was really my interest in history, my interest in politics. So it was, so it was fascinating to me to think of the ways that literature was mediating, um, you know, socio-political issues. Um, especially in Africa, you know, there's a commitment to politics in African literature. Um, so that was really one of the drawing, one of the attractive points. I remember taking a class as a, as a first year student at IMSU then and reading Chinachibe's um, novels. And, you know, that was really formative as an Igbo kid who grew up in Lagos who saw 
my father and his friends you know, performed some of the cultural rituals that Chibi was um, describing. So that was really the beginning for me of taking literature seriously as a cultural practice. But it was in my junior year that I, before then, I didn't really know much about the environment. I'd been interested in the Niger Delta, the, Ni the nearby Niger Delta. I was an undergraduate when militants were, you know, bombing oil installations, kidnapping oil workers, and, you know, basically a moment of volatility in the region um, due to the oil crisis. So I, as a junior, my professor taught a class called Literature and Environment, and we were reading works from the Niger Delta, you know, these were works that were just being published, works by um, Tanuri Ojaide, who teaches at one of the UNC, you know, campuses, I think it's Charlotte, um, you know, if, if, Ogaga Ifowodo, you know, these were writers work, writing poems, novels, dealing with the Niger Delta crisis, and it just blew my mind. I was drawn, because it was, I saw in those works, really, my attraction. They were interesting in terms of the forms they were using, but they were also engaged with the socio-political issue that was pressing Nigeria at the moment. So that was really how the interest um, came about, and that was, in, you know, in, you know, that was further um, um, supported when I arrived in the U.S. in 2009 for graduate school, and a few months later, the BP oil spill. You know, happened in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was blown away by the attention that I was getting uh, compared to you know the absolute no response to the incidents of oil spills you know in the Niger Delta every day really. Um, so those were the so those were yeah so those were the things that really got me interested in thinking about the questions that my work have focused on. The way the way. All right, so there are certainly a number of clear connections between your first book and this book. Um, though kind of one very obvious difference is that while the archive of your first book was primarily literature, um, African eco-media is centered on you know, largely photography and film, although you, know, you do sometimes uh, gesture to other uh, types of media. So what drew you to these different types of media and kind of how did your method working with these types of texts compare to your work, previous work with literature? Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you. So my, my interest, in, so I trained with Kenneth Harrow at Michigan State University, you know, so one of the foremost scholars of African film, who also came to visual culture from a, lit, from lit, from a literary background, you know, his first book was on, on literature. So studying with him at Michigan State, I, I, I got drawn into the work of film, you know, during that work. He invited me, for example, to work with him on African Studies Review as an editorial assistant, as where he was film review editor. So really, so the world of film really got, you know, was something that I was mastering as I was working on my dissertation. In fact, initially, I thought the dissertation was going to be a, a work on literature and film. But as the work developed, I realized I couldn't do justice to both. And then, you know, and um, decided to do a separate project ultimately at some point. But in between finishing my dissertation and and work completing my first book, I was drawn, I was blown away by this amazing archive of works dealing with African environment from 
photography to film to sculpture and some of them i found just you know looking around and some of them many friends who knew i was working on environmental stories have you seen this have you seen that and so it's, it struck me that there was this big movement on art in um, you know a kind of a kind of cultural tone in African studies that was really that was really happening, and which you know nobody had really done justice to. So I felt that you know there was much there was enough going on that needed you know some intellectual you know scrutiny, and um, and I, so I thought it was also a good segue really for my first for my first book. It was really a good segue. So I like to think of it you know as a second of a loose trilogy. So it was really this um, body of work imagine, and you know that were just fascinating to me that really got me interested in thinking about the world. And in terms of method, I would say that was, I think that's the most difficult thing to do this book. Because for the first book, I'm a literary scholar trained in close reading, which, you know, because of, but also because of my interest in politics, I try to find ways in which close reading and, you know, and political politics and historical contextualization work together. So that's what I did in my first book. But in this one, I, need to, I needed to immerse myself in visual culture. I needed to immerse myself a little bit in art history, you know, in media studies. So it was so really... Um, you know, so it was it was challenging to try to learn in the different methodologies of this um, different fields, but then create something of my own out of it. Really, you know, what, what I call insightful reading. So it was, I think, for me, it was challenging, but uh, but then also there was a liberation of a second book that I actually enjoyed too, being able to combine historicization with close reading, um, you know, selfish reading. You know, so I I, I think of my method here as really, I you know, in introduction I call it in praise of indiscipline. There's really no, there's really no consistent, you know, method. I just, you know, went with whatever worked for me to make the points I wanted to make about the work. Yeah. Great. Um, all right. So now let's get into the book, which, as you kind of succinctly put it in the introduction, examines the ecological footprint of media technologies in Africa, as well as the representation in media of ecological issues affecting the continent, uh, including degradation from oil and uranium extraction, dumping waste, and the politics of animal conservation. Uh, so first, it might help to talk a bit about some of the sort of key concepts that you develop in the book, uh, primarily the term ecomedia, uh, and sort of how you think about media more broadly, as well as your key method of kind of what you call insightful reading. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, so e ecomedia um, really primarily referred to, um, you know, media forms, you know, forms of communication that has, you know, that has ecological consequences, um, that bears ecological imprints. And then, so the field, you know, as it's imagined, has really primarily focused on, um, you know, film and photography and the rest of them. But the more, I, you know, but, I, but one of the things I wanted to do in the book is to have us to 
embrace to adopt a kind of an expanded sense of eco-media. Because if we think about it, you know, if media is a means of communication, is what facilitates communication, as my colleague John Duran Peters puts it. Um, you think about oil, for example, as as a media, as a medium, because of the way it facilitates our modern life, the way it facilitates connect communication between a place like the Niger Delta of Nigeria and other parts of the world. The way that Russia's strategic position today in the world um, is because of the oil pipeline that goes from, you know, from its oil fields to different parts of Europe. So I want us to think of media, uh, ecological media, as not just um, film photography and other you know, conventional media forms. I also want to think of, you know, these resources from the continent as media because of the work they're doing, you know, oil and uranium. But I'm also interested in the ways that, um, you know, my colleague John Duran Peters writes about elemental media, you know, water, you know, the land, the earth, fire, the ways that, the ways that, you know, trying to um, get resource media like oil and uranium, you know, the way the devastation, the impact that they have on what we call elemental media, fire, water, earth. So for me, then, my my sense of eco-media is an, a broad one that looks at communication devices, you know, like cell phones, you know, media, cultural forms like, um, like photography and film, uh, but also the impact on elemental media such as fire, water, and earth, you know, in the process of mineral extraction and the rest of them, so so that so that's the that's that's the broad sense of eco media that I try to thread, you know, in my book. Um, also, because I was threading this, you know, you know, a broad sense of media, um, I was also dealing with difficult images, difficult images. Um, when, when I started to talk about this book and give presentations before the book, you know, I, as I was writing on it, one of the questions that I kept that kept coming back was, you know, these are images of poverty porn. These are images that degraded Africa, and I, I, I was getting frustrated because I thought that I, I could, I wasn't getting, I wasn't remaining able to talk about the substance of the presentation. We got hung up on the images. So one, I, so I tried, I thought of different things to do, um, but the easiest part was to not talk about the images, no, not, not to show them. I thought that was the, that was that was something that was something um, too easy about that. It was really acceding to a very easy response, you know. I'm like, so for me, it was how can we recognize the problems of these images, but also think of other things that they are doing, and especially for someone who comes from a literature background, you know, having taught about multiple interpretation of text, the, you know, the polysemic meanings that the text could make possible. So in working with these images, then I. I said, okay, while I recognize this problem, what else can be done um, with them? So insightful reading provided for me a language. It provided for me a language, you know, for, for us to take seriously these images, you know, to not shy away from their discomforts, but to probe them for, you know, the kind of radical policies that they make possible. And as I wrote in the introduction, I draw inspiration from a, a black radical tradition that includes, you know, you know, um, you know, the you know the young you know the young the boy killed you know during this you know um during you know Jim Crow America in Mississippi you know Emmett Till's mother who decided to have an 
open casket for our son, you know, for America to grapple with, not to hide away, but to grapple with this, you know, image of, you know, of, of American racial violence. So for me, you know, grappling with the image of ecological violence, you know, becomes, you know, you know, draws inspiration from that. It asks us to look at image of exploitation, not as another tool of voyeurism, but to think of it as, as a strategy, as a way for thinking redress. Yeah. All right. Now that our, our listeners are um, oriented, and I, I think all of that is helpful, uh, let's turn to your individual chapters a bit, uh, which each kind of approach your broader arguments um, in kind of different ways. The, the first takes on two Afrofuturistic projects, one photographic, uh, which supplies the striking image um, on the book cover. Uh, and the other is a short film. In your analysis, you examine both sort of the emancipatory possibilities they present, um, but also sort of some of their shortcomings. But, but before we get to the kind of the last part, can you describe both projects a little bit, kind of what drew you to them and what about them that you find admirable? Yes. Um, so I'll, I'll begin with um, Fabrice Montero's um, um, images and um, prophecy. And I want to, again, thank Fabrice for his generosity, allowing me to use his image, not just in the book, but also for the cover. You know, it's really, it's really, it's elevated the book, you know, beyond my abilities. So I, I'm grateful to him for that. But, you know, but the, the images are just stunning. They're just stunning images. And that was one of those ima- sort of images that, you know, a colleague had sent to me. Uh, well, as I was, you know, finishing the first book, and um, yeah, so which is just, you know, I think is is the stunning character of those images, but also the way that they, the way that they evoke, you know, both um, both admiration, but also a kind of fear and repulsion. There's something about them that is ghostly, that is haunting as well. So it is the attractiveness and haunting nature, really, that really come into them. But the other thing too is the fact, the way that the composition, the composition of those images from trash, from waste. Um, the composition of these images from trash from waste and the way that they get embedded within this Dakar ecosystem, Dakar ecology. Um, so those are the things that got me, you know, fascinated me. Um, so really, the way that, you know, Fabrice Montero is using the past in rethinking the future, you know, the past that is waste material, the past that is African indigenous technologies i write about negritude as offering you know a you know offering a precursor to the project um i write about the self-satan movement which is this movement to clean up the car as offering an inspiration so i was interested in the way that the past you know haunts this project you know and in addition to its fascinating nature it's the same thing with um with the film Pumzi by Wanuri Kaiyo that I looked at also in the chapter you know um you know I followed Kaiyo's work and the ways that she's trying to you know bre- you know she's trying to break the conventions of African cinema really I found fascinating also she's also reusing waste in different ways she's drawing inspiration from the work of Wangari Matai you know this Kenyan you know environmentalist and Nobel Prize winner so I'm drawn to the way that the project of futurity that they are both interested in is very deeply embedded in African cultural systems and then um, African and African history as well so those are the things and I've found that you know aesthetically they have just they're just beautiful projects so your critical note regarding the film Pumzi is that as you put it in the end 
excludes its female protagonist from the future that it envisions. Uh, and so you kind of point out here that it ultimately excludes African women from its future and kind of risks allowing the past and present political exclusion to kind of repeat in the future. Now, I may be misreading you, but I wondered whether you feel that projects like this must always depict sort of socially utopian futures, or can there kind of ever be value in imagining how the present might risk a kind of imperfect future, if that makes sense. Yes, I do. Yeah, and I, I, I really like you know your you know this your notion of um, this your idea of imperfect future. Yeah, I think I think it's it's really useful and important. And yes, I, I I definitely you know because you know the future remains unknowable anyway. So it's by nature, it's by it's by nature um, imperfect. But what, what I was trying to mark, and I, I accept that premise, but I was trying to mark the is the way that the celebration of this emancipatory futuristic project, you know, don't even take cognizance of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so it's Pumzi, as you saw in the book, where she disappears at the end. And, um, you know, and scholars, you know, just don't praise that um, this human possibility, the margin of the tree and the and the woman at the end. But I, I just but I thought you know there's something there's something much more we can do with that. It is some issue that I have with you know with Black Panther, which I started a book with. You know, beautiful film, you know, fascinating, you know, celebrated, you know, from you know from you know from Angola to Zimbabwe and everywhere. Um, but it's, at the same time, I, the, the process of resource extraction there is is frightening, frighteningly similar to the violence of resource extraction that we have today. And I think that you know it's possible to to hold on to the emancipatory possibilities in those projects, while at the same time calling out those, you know, those limitations, you know, toward the search for a more perfect future, I think. So the project of, you know, if our future is, if if we take the premise of imperfect future seriously, I think the task, the work of imagination, our work as thinkers, but also as creative producers then, is to continue the work, you know, of, um, you know, to walk toward a more perfect in the future, you know, that is a project. And my calling out these problems, you know, is really, you know, in service of that project. Got it. That's that's helpful. Um, so your next chapter kind of touches on the very toxic uh, business of recycling discarded cell phones, computers, TVs, and other types of technology that, you know, as you note, are kind of designed to be obsolete within years rather than decades. Uh, to start, for those listening who might have very kind of little idea of sort of what this uh, recycling entails, can you kind of provide a brief description um, as well as the kind of larger network within which this kind of recycling fits into? Of, of course. So in this chapter, I'm, I'm describing this process of recycling in this um, location called Agubuloshe in, um, in Ghana, in a, really in the, in the capital city of Accra, of, of Ghana. And it's really young men, mostly from northern Ghana, who, you know, who break apart. They, you know, break open, you know, computers, cell phones, television sets to retrieve copper, to retrieve copper, cotton, you know, um, which now be used for recycling, you know, used to repair 
you know that they, they are sold you know and used in repairing of other you know of other devices um it's important to position this um this technological gadgets these media devices within, you know, a broader network, as you said, you know, some of them come from, you know, some of them come from Europe. They come from containers of used, much used objects. They've been used in Europe, transported to Ghana, where they are sold. And I want to smack that there is a vibrant, there's a vibrant informal economy of used computers, used cell phones. So some of them come in, they are sold as they are, you know, there are shops in this area selling these objects, but some of them don't work. And this, so they, they find themselves. So those those ones that don't work, you know, end up in this dump where these young young men are using fire to burn them, to open them up, to retrieve, you know, copper. And some of them also come from local use. You know, in fact, more and more these days, you know, I think due to the outcry about you know the problems there, much of some of the some of the objects being disposed of, you know, come from local use in Ghana. So so there is this in a college in a college that is both global but also local um, at the same time. So so they retrie- so to retrieve, so they use fire. So it, it, beca- it provides this this cycle of doom, this environment of doom with clouds and smoke and fire, you know, which is used, you know, to, you know, for the retrieval process, you know. So on one hand, this process, this place, you know, extends the lifespan of gadgets because the recycled material enable the f- continuous functioning. So in fact, you know, Africa, you know, places in Africa help, you know, to extend the life cycle of these gadgets, you know, postpone their dates with the, you know, with, with, the, with, the, with the trash bin. So there's something, um, and there's something, you know, positive about that, something that needs to be encouraged. However, the process of the recycling then, you know, the way the fire is being used, you know, produces, you know, toxicity. When the fire mixes with a computer gadgets, the chemicals in the computer systems, you know, with the copper, you know, produces you know, toxic, you know, um, toxic matter that, you know, is dangerous for the ecosystem, but also especially for the people who work in this very close to um, this matter. So it is that feedback loop of recycling, but also of toxicity um, and the network forms that, that they're embedded in that I try to, you know, um, do justice to in that chapter. So one of the kind of uh, things that you use for this is the photography project by Pieter Hugo of sort of, you know, the dump site um, that you mentioned. And you, you mentioned that Hugo's project is sort of one of these examples of something that's kind of gotten criticism um, for being a kind of sort of poverty porn, which you've sort of already mentioned that you you take those, you know, critiques seriously and you don't necessarily see the project as kind of perfect um, but you kind of argue that it is successful in highlighting uh, the labor that happens at places like it, uh, both as a type of digital labor, but also as a type of uh, free labor. And you know, here I was also kind of reminded of the colonial practice of forced labor um, as well. So how do Hugo's photographs kind of allow you to make the case um, that this labor should be kind of considered digital and free labor, and kind of what's at stake in this reading of yours of these sort of images? Yeah, so so it, it is a question of you know what makes it possible for the cell phones, the computers, 
for us to continue to buy them and dispose of them after two years or one year or the other bar. And for me, it is because it's possible to dispose of them cheaply in places like Agubuloshi, in other parts of the global south, other parts of the world where, you know, these um, devices go. So, so I, I wanted to think about the ways that, so, I, you know, we need to include, we need to include, you know, those locations that are, you know, those that take this older gadgets away so that we can, we can use, we can get and use the new. So I wanted to include them within, you know, this digital network, you know, where they're not always included, you know. Um, but, but part of what is going on here is also the question of labor, you know, as you know, you, you know, you're, you're describing a um, colonial labor, which, which is, you know, which, yeah, which is, is, is an interesting connection, but it even goes beyond, it goes further than colonial labor. It is also slavery, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, mm-hmm. capital find ways to extract labor in different ways, you know. That seem, I think, I think more, more, more recently, there is the guise of, you know, it's willingly given, it is not for, it's not coerced. But what, what, what is interesting to me as I, as I, as I looked at, you know, the, the, the fire engulfing, you know, these images that I'm looking at, as I look at the literature on toxicity in the place, as I look at literature, I've also looked at how much they earn. You realize that the recompense, the compensation is so little compared to what they're getting. And then, so why are they doing it? It's because there is no other option, you know. They enduring this, you know, this um the, the fire and the toxicity because you know they have no option. So we have a situation where the system, you know, the new, new liberal economy that we have, you know, f- extract labor, you know, from people, um, seemingly in um you know in you know in a voluntary manner. But given the structures of the system, the way that consistence of slavery and um, colonialism and post-colonial underdevelopment have really stifled, you know, the possibilities for people in there. So for me, the Ugo's picture just, Ugo's, you know, provides a provocative starting point to begin to think about these questions, the way that we, we need to loop those people and that economy into a global digital economy, that, you know, which normally would exclude them. But also the way that we need to rethink what we call free labor today. If these people have no choice, really, if what they make is really incommensurate with the risk of their labor, if what they make is contingent on what they find, not the labor they put in, you know, so it depends on what you find that is valuable. So if you consider all these factors, then, you know, it really, it puts pressure on the idea that, you know, free labor is willingly given. And that's what I wanted to, I, I wanted to, I, I wanted to mark with that. In the chapter, you, you pair the network of sort of digital technology production, consumption, and recycling uh, with then an agricultural uh, network, specifically banana production in Cameroon. Yes, yes. So how does the film uh, Big Banana help make sort of visible this production network? Uh, And how do the stakes here kind of compare to that of digital recycling or kind of put another way, you know, why is it kind of productive to think about these sort of two somewhat different networks together? Yes. Yes. Thank you. So as as some... If you look at Peter Ugo's permanent hero, it becomes clear that it's an artistic project, but it's also a kind of advocacy project. You know, the introduction, the introduction material, and all that. The, so the idea is to push for action. So it's to push for action. What I find interesting 
um, with the, the film Big Banana is that it shares something with Ugo's project, which is this, you know, another ecology of risk in Ghana, where African workers are forced to work in banana plantations that pay them so little, and where, you know, working there means, you know, subjecting themselves to diseases and all that. And if Ugo's work, you know, there's the there's a potentiality. The images so shows the potentiality. There's a sense in which the medium of film, the medium of documentary, allows us to now see, you know, people, people already diseased. So the, the film temporality allows us to see people are already diseased. You know, so the, you know what remains a possibility, a, you know, a potential in Ugo's photographs. You know, has become a reality as the film. You know, interviews. You know, people who are suffering from different ailments as a consequence. Um, so there's a sense in which I see them. You know, having that connection in that way. You know, that connection that they have is that. Um, while Ugo's work, you know, offers the work of critique, one of the interesting things about Big Banana is that the critique is supplemented with um, an invitation to uh, identify with a particular an alternative network, which is the, this farmers now selling to an ethical, an ethical fair trade partner in business in St. Louis, Missouri, rather than the, the you know the large you know plantation. So so that so the film is inviting inviting viewers then to participate in this in this grain you know consumption that that would favor um, that would favor you know small planters you know in places like the Cameroon. So we find that these people don't want the film. They don't want to be disconnected from the global network. Mm-hmm. They just want to be in this in this network, you know, in a more equitable, in a less exploitative, and in a less ecological devastating manner. And then the film offers an alternative. Of course, that has its own problems too, you know, of green capitalism as an alternative has its own problems. But I'm interested us, but in the way that you know the film is inviting viewers to continue to imagine alternative ways of being with the world. Of engaging with Africans that are less exploitative, so I see I see it building on in some way on Ugo's project mm-hmm. from a different location. Your next chapter considers the ecologies of oil and uranium extraction, um, and here you kind of intervene, you know, really interestingly into the literature of trauma studies to kind of consider how. Uh, oil extraction in Nigeria and uranium mining in Niger are sort of imbricated in kind of multi-generational trauma that promises to continue to unfold. Um, So how does sort of literature on trauma help you kind of better understand these cases of resource extraction, um, along with sort of the depictions of it in kind of photography, film, and other media? Yes. So it's so it's for me it's it's really a question of you know the current discourse on trauma often tend to focus mostly on on you know what has happened on the past and then the present and there's all the possibility of healing you know in the future and um, but one of the things that's looking at the literature um, but also the photography in, in the photographs of Ed Kashi that I'm looking at here there's a lot of images of children. A lot of image, you know, children play a very prominent role, and then in the in the poem by Uche Peter Omez, you know, in, in the which I also look at in the work, Uche, you know, Uche is talking about this continuous eating of the land, this continuous devastation of the land. So, so the so the literary and the filmic um, works then they cue me to ask us to think about the ways that this 
problems are ongoing in the Niger Delta. That's the, the that it's you know it's not it's not just a present issue. Um, but even if we if we stop oil pollution in the Niger Delta today, um, if we stop drilling for oil, you know there is the idea of the slow violence of you know the lingering impact of the, what we've done already. You know, because again, in, in, think about the West today. We're talking about renewable energies, this transition to renewable energies. But have we thought, so what will happen to places like the Niger Delta when the last oil is shut, shut off? Shell is going to leave. Everybody, all the oil companies are going to leave. Does it mean that exploitation has stopped? Does it mean that the pollution of the environment will stop because we shut off the oil? So trauma of the future then is a way for us to continue to account for these communities, even post-transition, for us to, to think about, you know, the ways that the lingering, the continuous impact of um, current and past exploitation, you know, and then for us to, to seriously think of how we can mitigate those then so that it doesn't stop with transition, that we have to deal with this infrastructure that, that we, we are leaving behind, but also that this works asking us to take seriously the young people the young people who have been raised within this ecologies of violence, the cycle of violence, you know. So that's what I've tried to capture with the idea of the trauma of the future in those, um, in, in those works. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your fourth chapter touches on an image that I imagine most listeners in the U.S. will recall, um, which is the photograph of a dead lion after Walter Palmer, an American dentist, killed Cecil the lion uh, while big game hunting in Zimbabwe in 2015. In the chapter, you argue that the reason this image went viral, so to speak, is because it appeared during the Black Lives Matter activism at the time. Um, so which to help kind of listeners who may have a hard time uh, remembering all that was happening in 2015. Uh, so the image surfaced on July 1st, less than a month following the violent attack against worshipers at a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina by a white nationalist gunman. Um, so how do American racial politics help better explain the media event of Cecil the Lion's death? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I think, you know, it's just, it's embedded within, it, embedded within a racial at atmospherics that Africa has always been involved in, Africa has always been involved in. And this is where, you know, the expansive method I was talking about coming to play in this chapter, where I'm looking at images, but it is really, but is history, you know, um, the historic, you know, history, you know, um, offers offers um, a very robust, you know, 
scaffolding for me to arrive at the arguments that I'm that, that I'm actually making here. So you think about you know so like you know many lions have been killed across the continent before and after, but not, you know why didn't any of them you know have the, the same kind of resonance that did that, that that this had? So for me, it's really because you know it's this moment, this identification heightened attention on white supremacy around this time. It's also um, it's also the you know the way that white supremacy orders other life forms, you know, um, you know, African black lives, you know. And there's a long history of you know positioning African life, black lives in relation to the animal in relation to animal life. So there's a sense in which you know all this um, so 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 this is the so this is the racial background that I think, you know, offers, you know, you know, visibility um, to that image. And what I've tried to do then is to make that connection of what was happening around this time, you know, that this was another incident of, a, of you know, of a white man, you know, walking into a place populated by black people and taking whatever life they desired because those lives are considered, um, you know, inferior to beneath the life, you know, the life of white people. And like, you know, police, you know, like many people have killed black people in the United States too. You know, the idea was that, you know, what well, eventually it was, it was illegal hunt, you know, and there was no consequence for, for, uh, for um, Walter Palmer. Um, so, so that connection was really interesting, but also because it, there's a long, you know, you talked about colonial labor in Africa. There's, a, there's, is. There's also a long history of colonial expeditions, including, you know, the former American president Roosevelt's expedition, you know, to, you know, to Africa and the permission he received to kill whatever he desired, whatever life, you know, he desires. So, you know, so for me, you know, so this, the claim of the lion within the Black Lives Matter movement is important, but we also have to still think about it within the long durée of, um, you know, expeditions, you know, to the art of darkness, to the continents, and then with, without, with, with little consequences for whatever destruction, you know, is made in the name of white supremacy, yeah. You end the chapter with a kind of very different type of entanglement of humans and non-humans on the continent uh, with a really interesting reading of the documentary Virunga, um, which looks at conservation efforts to protect mountain gorillas in Virunga National Park in eastern Congo. Uh, you praise the film for not only, you know, for sort of rooting the contemporary uh, violence surrounding the park uh, with sort of in Congo's colonial past, uh, but also for kind of effectively linking human and animal, and animal um, emotions, you know, both their suffering and their joy. Um, so first, kind of how does the documentary achieve this? And second, kind of what is at stake to you in sort of visualizing this link? Yes. Um, so the, um, the, the place to start is the connection really between blackness and the blackness and animality, which is something that, you know, many, you know, many, you know, again, many black people are really uncomfortable from that connection, you know, because of the racialized history. And for me, I, but, I, but I also come from an African Igbo background where, you know, where they link, for example, my com in my community in Imo State, where I come from, you know, the python, you know, the python, the python has a very sacred importance in my community. We can't kill a python. We're linked. We're culturally linked, you know, to a python. So I come, you know, so I have a background. I've I come from a culture where, I, you know, I, I am not 
You know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of being linked to an animal. Um, and it seems to me that to continue to maintain that logic of that anxiety about animalization is to remain linked to the dis- to the colonial discourse, to remain linked to you know the discourse of white supremacy. So, in my view, then one way to counteract that problem is to actually go to practices on the continents. You know, um, in the Americas, among indigenous peoples in America, that have relational, relational, that relational, you know, entanglements, you know, with between humans and non-human, their positive visions of interspecies relationships um, that we need to embrace as a counter to the as a counter to the colonial discourse. Of separating humans from non-humans, um, so and so, so, so that is what I wanted to turn to in that final chapter, in that final part of that chapter. And Virunga, you know, Virunga just offered an interesting, an interesting dimension. The way that you know the the um, you know the gorillas, you know, in in the Virunga National Park, their relationship with the caretakers, you know, the, the, the kind of interspecies play that they're engaging in, the way that they mourn both human and an animal. Because that is, that, is, that is the flip side of this, where the animal gets privileged over humans, and humans are displaced for the animal. That's happened across the continent, too. So I found, you know, what I, what I found in the film, despite these limitations, is this attentiveness to bring human and animals together, you know, there's a kind of mourning, a kind of attentiveness to each individual lives for both of them within the process of crisis. Um, the film technique, the parallel editing, the use of parallel editing in the film to bring us, to link, you know, human suffering together with animal suffering together. So, this, so these are some of the things I liked about Virunga. So because if one of the problems, one of the critiques I got, I get, even from my first book, where I'm talking about aesthetics of proximity is that, well, but humans are suffering in Africa. Why should they care about others? Why should they care about animals? And I tried to, my project has always been about, well, why should it be either or? Why can't we keep the projects together? Which reminds me of the similar attitude, you know, in the nationalist movements across Africa, right? This notion that, you know, the right of women can wait. Let us kick off the colonizers. Let's kick out the colonizers. Then we can worry about women, right? Why can't us, why can't it be intersectional? Why can't the fight against, you know, colonialism and imperialism be implicated in, be entangled with the right, you know, for women and other other forms of minorities. So it seems so. That's 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 the so. The, so I've always believed that. So my projects have always argued for including, and that's why Virunga is important. That within a crisis landscape, that the film is invested in in the Congo, it is possible to bring together the suffering of humans and others together, and work to address, you know, both or multiple issues at the same time. So I think Virunga offers, um, you know, offers a fine, you know, um, instrument for that intersectional approach to ecological problem solving on the continent. Your final chapter now then takes us uh, to African cities. Um, And you claim, and here I'm quoting you, that photography and film offer windows for appreciating daily lives of ordinary people in the city and proffer the kind of imaginative means for transforming African urbanity toward more just and sustainable futures. 
So what are some examples of eco-media that kind of make room for hope in this regard and kind of what makes them effective uh, at this? Yeah, you know, thanks again for you know another you know fascinating question. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed um, this conversation. Um, so, so in in the in that final chapter, I wanted to you know bring my idea of network form to a head, because you know when we think about ecology, we're thinking mostly of sites of extraction. We're thinking of you know rural areas when we when we're thinking of ecology in a way, and really the urban spaces everywhere, but on the continent especially, is a site of meeting, is a site of relation, is a place where the rural and the urban, the urban areas are made and, and the urban meet. Is a site where human and non-human, where the local and the global coming together, you know, urban spaces like Lagos offer that. So for me then, you know, so that's, that chapter is, is you know, offers, you know, a tribute to the lives of, you know, people, ordinary people making their way, you know, um, on the continent, in urban areas in the continent. But also the urban space as where we can begin to visualize unfinished projects, your finished project of emancipation, of independence, of freedom. Um, but what I think, what I, what I find fascinating, the project I looked at, especially at the end of that chapter, is really the imaginative projects, like the work of Shant, you know, the work of Olale Konjeifos, um, whose work Shanti Megastructures, so this futuristic architectural drawing of Makoko, which is this impoverished area of Lagos, you know, this 2050 vision of that, you know, you know, it's it's greenery, it is solar power. Um, so there's a sense in which, you know, the work of creative theorizing that these projects do, um, making room, allowing, you know, thinking for us, you know, the work of imagination, the work of imagination as a sport for practice, you know. So imagine an alternative to the present, you know, allowing us to see the different possibilities that we can work toward, you know, to make possible. So Lale Conjeifos' work, you know, becomes, you know, important in that regard. Um, there is also the work of from Femi Odubemi, who is an engine filmmaker, you know, again, focused on Makoko and the ways that this community, this riverine community, threatened by the Lagos government, the, you know, the, idea, the way that the self-organization that they are putting, that they are doing, you know, that so supports, provide education for their children and make possible a different future for them. I think, you know, I think, you know, these are, these are important projects so that we see the ways that this media from urban, focusing on urban areas or extraction, they're not just about destruction. There are also the possibilities, imaginative possibilities, um, for um, alternative scenarios that they make possible, so that's so that so, so those are so shanty mega structures, um, family the women's film Makoko, the open ways of of thinking beyond the limitations of the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also kind of a finding a way to kind of make permanent a kind of community that's always had to kind of live in a very kind of impermanent way, always at risk of kind of getting bulldozed by the exactly. state. Yeah. yeah, exactly correct. Yes. And then, and then seeing the way that this community community can be, because the idea of the urban somewhere is somehow, you know, we have to cut down the trees to make space for all the structures that we want to put together. It's a way in which, you know, 
that the urban space can be can be where you know greenery and humans can thrive, um, where aquatic life and humans can thrive without need for without competition more or less, without need to eliminate one for the other. Your epilogue is titled uh, "Toward Imperfect Media." Uh, so, how do you define imperfect media, and how did you kind of come to develop this concept, and kind of why is it something that's worth uh, working toward? Yes. So, given 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 what I've said in the book, especially in chapter two, about you know the footprint of ecological media themselves, of computers, of film, of photography, it became you know it became important for me to think of so. You know, what do we do? Do we stop making films? Do we stop all these projects? The answer is no. You know, our our our, our humanity needs this cultural pro- project, these cultural productions. The idea then is for us to think of ways to reduce the footprint, to decarbonize, you know, our media forms. So imperfect media then offers me a language, um, offers me a language, you know, to to name you know, these projects that are really, you know, oriented toward, you know, a sustainable future. And the, line, the term comes from imperfect cinema, which is a term that was used, you know, in the 1970s, in the 1970s especially, to name revolutionary art films, you know, from thought cinema, projects that were against the capitalist exploitation of the West. They were anti-colonial films, you know, the work of Eli Garima would fall within, you know, thought cinema. So if in thoughts, if in if in imperfect cinema, the idea is to produce art that is revolutionary, not in support of um, not in support of capitalism, you know, it was low production. It was whatever you needed to do to produce revolutionary art was important. I felt that revolutionary art now should be Art that is mindful of the future. So it is using low tech, low tech art. You know, how can we produce art that isn't so invested, invested in waste? How can we produce art that from little? How can we make much out of little? And I and I think that African cinematic practice, because of its limited funding from inception, offers us you know examples. You know, African artists making so much out of little resources. I see that as they are the vanguard of an alternative in artistic practice that that remains effective, remains viable, remains political, remains artistically pleasing. But you know, but they are made with limited, with limited resources. They are mindful of finitude. So, 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 um, imperfect media for me then names so that you know it names the project of making art from little, from waste, you know, waste aesthetics. It's also an invitation for us to recalibrate our tastes. You know, for for media, because sometimes people say, "Well, I don't watch African film because it's not as pleasing as Hollywood and the rest of it." But Hollywood, you know, what is the carbon footprint of Hollywood? You know, so it's also an invitation for us to recalibrate our tastes, you know, toward what our pleasure, our pleasure, our pleasure principle really. You know, what is an aesthetically pleasing work? What is the carbon footprint that it leaves behind? How can we make something beautiful out of less? And how can we learn to love? The beautiful that is also ecologically sustainable. So that is so that is a challenge that imperfect media offers us. And again, you know, African artists, you know, African media producers, I think are the vanguard of that kind of work too. So now that we've kind of gone, you know, through the book, and of course we haven't touched on everything, but you know, we've at least kind of given uh, listeners a sense of the book. Um, 
I'd like to step back a bit and kind of give you a chance to talk more about the book as a whole. Uh, so as it is already clear, I think from our discussion, you are engaged in this work because you perceive that the stakes here are high and they're especially high for the African continent. Uh, so my question here kind of has two parts. First, kind of what do you hope this book accomplishes or kind of what do you see as its key interventions? Uh, and then second, do you see this book kind of accomplishing something different for different audiences? Um, and I suppose what I'm kind of getting at here is I wonder if your hopes for this book are different for a kind of academic audience, an art world audience, and a broader audience. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so I, you know, so primarily I wrote this um, as an academic book for, for an academic audience to, um, and, and the motivation in addition, you know, so I started off trying to do justice to this fascinating artworks you know, focusing on um, ecological issues on the continent. But the more I read and researched, you know, it appeared to me that Africa ought to be central to some of the conversations happening, conversations about infrastructure in media studies, um, conversation about, you know, in, in the energy humanities um, as well. So I thought that Africa needs to be central to, to this you know, these conversations because, you know, from oil, which is at the base of our media culture, um, to the recycling of our media devices, you know, Africa, you know, is um, is an instrumental to all these processes. So, um, so, so, so then, you know, so, so it's a book that I've written for an academic culture, an, an academic audience, you know, to consider Africa's centrality, to put Africa at the center of this in you know, larger conversations about media infrastructure and about again ways of rethinking our future, you know, the, the ways that uh, you know, think ways of rethinking our future in the environmental humanities. So I wanted to put Africa in the at the center of that conversation. But I've also been, I've also been, you know, um, it, so I wrote for an academic audience, but my, my, my principle of writing has always been to be accessible, you know, from, you know, from, you know, from my, you know, from, I tried in, in graduate school to dabble in, you know, in, in, in the um, esoteric speak where nobody complains what you're saying for, the, for theorizing, for theorizing's sake. And it just, it just wasn't me. It just wasn't, it's not the kind of work I want to do. So I've tried to make this work accessible. So I hope, you know, that people, you know, especially people interested in art, because, and I use, you know, some of the people I was engaging with in the book are artists, you know, and artists historians too so that some of them would find the book you know interesting and pleasing and maybe general you know an audience that is interested in in African environments would find would find this you know useful in some way and I, I hope I've written the book in a way that it opens up avenues for different forms of audiences but primarily you know it's a book that I've written for an academic audience you know um, but with the hope you know, one, you know, one can always hope, right, that it will find it will find readers beyond, you know, that community. I mean, I, I could certainly imagine it being adapted somewhat to some sort of museum, like art museum. You know, I, right, right, um, right. 
you right. know, perhaps a, a future project. <laughs> I, yeah. Yes, I, and I agree because I've, I've been getting invitations. To, oh, good. For, I've been getting invitations, you know, from from museums and arts, you know, and galleries, you know, for projects to do things, you know, to imagine collaborations, to do things together. So yes, I yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely see that, you know, and it's really primarily on the strength of this book, I think. So yes, yeah, so yeah, I'm curious to see how those, you know, how, how, how those emerge. Yeah. So kind of related to these broader questions, you know, a theme of the book is sort of the ethics of producing uh, eco-media. This is something that you discussed for a lot of the works that you you cover, um, particularly in terms of media projects on topics that could easily be seen as kind of exploiting uh, the suffering of others. You know, images of dire poverty, sickness, ill health from toxins, um, and so forth. So, you know, if a kind of hypothetical artist uh, came to you about an eco-media project they had in mind, I'm wondering kind of how you might advise them. Um, And just say it's like a student you have as an undergrad who's also, you know, maybe like an art major. Um, uh, So I I realize this is a broad question, but I wonder if there are questions you think artists should kind of ask themselves or certain best practices they ought to adopt or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I'll be very wary of, you know, of, of impeding on, on the artistic license. But I think on a more serious note, though, I think that it's really, I find that the best artists are those who are informed. At those who are informed, you know, doing, you know, researching, you know, researching the topic or the subject, I've always found that it just, it opens up, it just really opens up, you know, it it, it opens up opens up avenues to boost creativity, you know. Um, so I would say, you know, researching the issue and the subject, you know, letting the arts, you know, derive. You know, f- we're not derived from, but you know, take some inspiration from, you know, from research, you know, into the issue, the location. Um, that's the f- that is that's the central point, and and. And then, you know, if especially when the, if the project is an eco-media one, to think about, you know, the footprint of the project, um, both in this production, but also in the way to circulate, and then to bear that in mind, you know, and how can that, how can that be made, how can the work use as less energy or as possible, and what are ways in which it can be offset, you know, you know, um, you know, at the same time. And then with the world's kind of networks, you know, that, they, that does the work, um, you know, involve itself in, in its making, but also, you know, at the points of circulation and distribution. So, so yeah, so, do, you know, those are some of the questions that I would, um, th- 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 yeah, those, those are the, some of the questions that I would encourage an artist who is foolish enough to come ask me what, you know, <laughs> what, what to do, you know, yeah. So, th- th- you know, those are the kind of questions I, w- I would pose to them. Um, so, you know, uh, despite the fact that this book was published uh, just last December as a kind of testament to its, you know, impact already, uh, I know that you've, you know, done a number of talks and interviews related to it. Uh, so I wonder if you could kind of reflect on the feedback you've gotten so far, whether any of it has surprised you or kind of opened up new ways of thinking about some of the topics covered or concepts you've developed. <laughs> Yes. Yes. You know, yes, I would say, you know, I want to thank, you know, readers of the book and, you know, I've been, I've been humbled by the response it's gotten within just a few months of its, 
uh, of its appearance. And I've had to, like, you know, unfortunately turn down some invitations to do some talks around it because I just, there's just so much that each, each of us can, can do. Uh, but, I, you know, the response has been overwhelming, has really, really been overwhelmingly positive. It's really been overwhelmingly positive. People have, um, they've, they've drawn connections, you know, to different projects in other parts of the world. Um, you know, I, I, you know, most recently I was, I was giving it, I was, um, I was giving a talk on it at Columbia on fr- last Friday. And so, and, you know, again, the response was very positive and, you know, an anthropologist who works in South Africa, um, um, Rosalind, you know, were, you know, was generous in, in her response. And she really opened, you know, opened, opened up, opened up, you know, new ways of thinking, you know, you know, so the way that the work itself is generative of other further, of further thinking. For example, you know, the use of the frame, you know, the images in chapter three, images of chap- in chapter three, the one on Niger Delta, you know, the frame, you know, how, how can we think of them as, you know, st- strategies of containment, and the ways that they resist, resist enclosures at the same time. Um, you know, the provocative question that Rosalind opened with, you know, is what burns us? Because the book is really a fire, it's treading fire, what burns us, you know? And, you know, so there have really been these provocative responses, you know, you know, which for me is a testament to the book's ability to generate, you know, these thoughts, you know, many of which I didn't think about as I was um, writing the book. But I'm pleased that it's been positive and I'm looking forward now to formal academic reviews, I know some of them are in the works. Now I'm looking, I'm looking forward to them. You know, to see, to see what you know, colleagues think. You know, um, in a, in a more deliberative, more deliberative, um, sustained, you know, form of the book review. Um, but yeah, but you know, I've just really been, I've, I've, I'm just grateful and thankful for. The positive reviews, and I, I, you know, I look forward to it making its way across the world and taking off, taking on a life of its own. Yeah. And then I guess this sort of leads me to my final question, which is sort of, what are you working on uh, currently? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when when I so um, out of the blessing, of course, of of doing a work of writing African eco media is the fact that, you know, I just, I just don't have, you know, I've not really had the time to do other things, but what I would, I wanted to, what I would I'd like to write on soon is a work that is bringing African cultural productions, literature, film, in relation to others from everywhere, joined by their interest in the journey motif, where a journey, a trip, becomes, you know, an impetus for for environmental discovery, for environmental cautiousness, for a revelation of environmental degradation, where something as simple as, you know, to a journey, um, you know, and I will give you a quick example. In a novel, Elon Abila's Oil on Water, which is this novel on the Niger Delta, it is, you know, so a white woman has been kidnapped in the Delta, and it is the, the trip of the journalist to find her then becomes the excuse, the motivation for exposing devastation of ecologies. So the search for the white woman becomes an exposure, becomes an opportunity. So that so you know, it's a technique that I'm seeing across different texts from not just on the continent but across across the world. Um, so where the journey becomes, you know. So I'm trying to work on the book that you know, which I, I want I consider the last of of a, of a loose trilogy of you know the three of three books on on environmentalism, um, 
and, and humanity. So, um, so that's what I'm, I'm in my, whenever my next spare time comes, <laughs> I'll be thinking about and reading around. Um, so that's one project. I also have a second project I started working on, which is has little to do with environment. It's a book that is bringing African and Caribbean literatures together as, um, as an instance of, um, you know, an underlooked, understudied, you know, um, site of thinking of the Black Atlantic and the process of diaspora. Um, so these are the two things that I would be working on the next time, you know, I, I get a chance, yeah. yeah I, can, I can certainly see the connections. I mean, one thing we didn't get a chance to really discuss much about was how sort of the site of uranium uh, mining that you look at is on a kind of wider arc of migration for a lot of a lot of people correct so. correct yes correct yes so yes so so that's so traveling moving has always been entangled with uh, with some um, environmental problems or environmental restoration and um so the next project wants to make that central to its argument well that sounds really interesting and i look forward to reading it whenever it you know comes yeah. out uh, into the world um, Hope, right. <laughs> hopefully one day. Thank you. <laughs> well, Dr. Ihika, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and the questions and um, for everything.